When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Let the word go forth. Fool me once. Are you fired up? I'm not a crook. Are you ready to go? Shame on, shame on you. It's Abe Lincoln's Top Hat, hosted by Ben Kissel. Boom, you can't get fooled again. Hey, what's up, everyone? How you doing? Ben Kissel here. Marcus Parks is busy writing the book. Uh, Travis Morningstar is with me. All right, there he is whistling. Very nice. Okay, we got a bunch of stuff to get to, and I am excited for today's episode. A little bit later on, maybe 15, 20 minutes from now. I'll be interviewing Rabia Chowdhury. Of course, she uh, hosts a very successful podcast herself. It's called Undisclosed. She also wrote Adnan's story, The Search for Truth and Justice After Serial. Of course, that's in reference to Adnan Syed, uh, who was the main focus and the subject of the very successful podcast that is known as Serial. So we have a great conversation coming up, and I am excited for all of you uh, to hear it. Uh, First things first, obviously, we're in 25 days now. So we're over the 20-day mark for the government shutdown, officially the longest shutdown in history. It continues to be a thorn in Donald Trump's side today. Uh, as a matter of fact, this is Tuesday the 15th. He said that um, it's not a national emergency. What's happening on the border? So why the heck is the government shut down? Well, that is uh, the billion-dollar question, isn't it? 800,000 federal workers still out of work, not getting paid. And, of course, the ultimate irony of the shutdown is, It is over, supposedly, border security, Uh, but as we see now with our airports, seaports becoming increasingly dangerous, the risk of a terror attack or drugs getting through or weapons getting through are exponentially higher with each passing day. Obviously, the Coast Guard not getting paid, TSA workers not getting paid, and as we talked about on last week's episode, air traffic controllers not getting paid, some being forced to take up Uh, a second job. So now we have a situation where he wants to, under the guise of border security and under the guise of the protection of of the people in this country, he is making us less safe with this ridiculous government shutdown. It really is. The irony is just remarkable. He he changed his mind this morning. He said it's not an emergency. I think all it took was ninety fish fillets. You know, as I saw that he had he had the football boys over from Clemson. They crushed Alabama in the championship game. And Donald Trump, because there is no chef around, I, I, I guess uh, he had uh, maybe Kellyanne went out, went through the drive-through, got some burgers, 
And uh, my God, it, it was a, he was the happiest I've ever seen him. He was so yeah. he was like presiding over the <laughs> feast, like a, like a really like a a trailer park king. Not to demean anyone who lives in a trailer park. Trump was hangry with, and that's why he was causing this. This big... you think the burgers are going to help him? I th- huh? Yeah, I think he yeah. needs a couple more spicy chicken sandwiches Ooh. from Wendy's. I think that would calm me down. So I think maybe if we just start pumping his body full of saturated fat i think we might find a way out of this government shutdown as a matter of fact trump uh took quite a bit of time to explain <laughs> exactly why he loved mcdonald's and burger king uh this is a this is a quote from the president by the way a lot of people thought it was extremely uh according to reggie bush uh a former football player for the new orleans saints and i believe he also he played i think he played for the dolphins uh, he called it a slap in the face so a lot of people were like maybe athletes don't want to eat a bunch of fast food but nonetheless this is the exact quote from our president regarding why he got all of this fast food. By the way, he spent $3,000 of it, of his own money. That's his what he money. said, of his own money. He says, if it's American, I like it. It's all American stuff, but it's good stuff. And we have the national champion team here, as you know, Clemson Tigers. And they had a fantastic game against Alabama, and they're all here. They're right outside the room, and I think we're going to let you see them. But I'll bet you, as much food as we have, we have pizzas, we have 300 hamburgers, we have many, many french fries, all of our favorite foods. I want to see what's here when we leave, because I don't think it's going to be much. The reason we did this is because of the shutdown. We want to make sure that everything is right, so we sent out, we got this, and we have some wonderful people working in the White House. They helped us out, they helped us out with this. So it is magical, his love of this fast food. And then it's so difficult to read Trump quotes because the brain you, your brain has to like re re um adjust and like just like recalculate how humans talk yeah um it is incredible so at this point the clemson tigers are just outside the door and then trump is presiding over the the buffet that is it it, 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 it is truly american i will give him credit for that it is a truly american buffet to usher in people who play, of course, America's favorite sport, which is naturally football. And then you, if you look at the pictures from that evening, the football players sort of going around the table, the look on their face and the way that they're they're handling the food, it's it's like parents looking at like a sixth grader's science project. It is. It's, it's like an like open the, house, a, a science the, fair. It's like that movie Blank Check with the kid <laughs> where he gets a blank check and then if you had to be like, you're throwing a big party, kid. What are you going to get? And he walks by a Wendy's and then you just cut to the scene of him carrying all the bags and them just having a great time slamming down chicken nuggets and square beef patties. Silver (laughs) platters in the White House covered in barbecue sauce and uh, sweet and sour sauce. You know, it's funny. I was talking with Henry about this. And, you know, obviously there's there's so much anger and stuff uh, directed at the president, much of it rightfully so. But it's it's stuff like this that I still – I just look at it and I'm like – you. I, I, I detach my brain yeah. like from like, the, oh, this is reality. And I just try to pretend I'm waking up for the first time, like I've been in a coma and I'm just like, I don't, I just wouldn't even believe it. Not the hashtag, not the onion is the theme of these past two years. You know, but that, that picture of him, so pr- like, like Jesus's last supper. But with, with much less healthy food um, and presumably less wine. So anyway, in real news, other than that ridiculous, I'm you know, uh, it is interesting. It's good that he had him at the White House. I hope they had a good experience. I don't freaking know. Uh, whatever. It's one of the big award rewards that you get once you win a national championship. Um, usually, 
uh, when the president brings you to the White House, people are like really excited to go. Um, but of course, as we've seen with past championship teams, I think specifically uh, the Golden State Warriors and perhaps the Cleveland Cavaliers, um, they didn't go, and then te- Donald yeah. Trump got really upset. A couple and teams he was have hurt. refused. It almost became like the. I thought that was going to be like the par. Uh, yeah, for everyone was just sort of rejected. Well, wholesale. you know, these are college kids, so yeah. it's, it's 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 a little bit different. I don't think they have quite the autonomy. I'm sure if they didn't want to go, they didn't have to go. But uh, you know, seen I would love to see the White House, um, and I guess it would be interesting to eat fast food inside of the White House. Uh, so I think I would go. But uh, my God, uh, you <laughs> know, if fantasy- you're in Alabama, it's like that's the one. The one consolation prize to losing is you don't have to go hang out with Donald Trump. Although, uh, you know, honestly, if I have to hang out with Trump, eating fast food with him is probably about as good as it could get, you know, because he's going to be nice. He's going to be on his best behavior because he's just so happy. He's just so happy to be around all of his high-carb, high-fat foods. It is truly some fantasy island shit. It really is. It's it's just Looking at his big grin as he's he's standing in front of 800 uh, Big Macs. It's just yeah. I think it was yeah. It's it's okay. Anyway, three thousand dollars worth of fast food. Hats off to you, Donald. Uh, my record is thirty three dollars at Taco <laughs> Bell. We've talked about this before. I set the single person record in the Taco Bell uh, in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. I don't know if someone's broken it yet. If I find out someone has, I'm going back and spending forty, forty five, whatever it takes. And I'm not going to be giving any more away with your own money. With my own money. Because that's just how nice I am. So in much more significant news, William Barr, uh, he, he's been nominated, or he has been nominated by Trump to be the new attorney general. Um, you know, I watched the Senate hearings today. It's uh, These Senate hearings always are really aggravating because everyone gets four minutes and then uh, nothing really is said. And, um, you, you know, it, it's already a foregone conclusion. Basically, mm. William Barr would have to drop trow <laughs> and just, like, do something – very uh, unbecoming of a attorney general um, not to get the nomination. In this committee, the, the Republicans have 53 votes. You only need a simple majority. So they don't only need all Republicans, but they will get all Republicans and probably some Democrats too because William Barr, he's been around for quite a long time. The controversial thing about him, of course, is this 19-page letter or memo that he sent out um, basically criticizing – the obstruction of justice case against Donald Trump in the context of he firing James Comey. But the thing about this is uh, James Comey, as we all know, if you're the left, right, or center, he was horrible in 2016. What he did with Hillary Clinton's investigation, when he reopened it, not to have it re, he reopened it to kind of close it and just publicly scold her. Yeah. Um, when Donald Trump fired him, obviously you get the whole obstruction of justice possibility. Uh, of course, you know the the uh, the Mueller investigation continues to rage forward and it will continue to rage forward uh, under William Barr as well. He, he won't recuse himself. Donald Trump does have a legal right to fire any attorney general that he wants to or any um, federal employee really that he wants to. And I firmly believe that if Hillary Clinton would have won, I think she would have fired Comey too. I mean, it seemed like, according to the experts that I have read, Comey broke just traditional FBI protocol. They, uh, When he went on and gave his one-person press conference, unbeknownst to the FBI, by the way, he just did it. So they turned on TV one day and they're like, why is James Comey on television? What is happening? So even within the, the FBI community, his behavior was seen as abnormal. So I think he would have been fired no matter what. Obviously, in the context of what's going on with the Russian collusion uh, investigation, 
Uh, it, it brings it a little bit of a different angle, but legally, Donald Trump had the right to fire him. Sure. And I think that any president would have fired him because, uh, you know, it was I, he James Comey was just way out of line. I think he acted way out of line and potentially cost Hillary Clinton the election. Comey's fine. He's on like a book tour now. Yeah, he's he's like a celebrity. Thing. He's just yeah. a nice, he's a tall guy, so I got to love him a little bit. But, you know, <laughs> um, and when it comes to William Barr, of course, the Democrats have a line of questioning and. They're talking about, are you going to be a stooge for Trump, basically? That's all they're saying. And then he's just like, you know, our agendas are going to align for the most part, like the border wall. But the thing about this with the Democrats talking, you know, if they were, you know, Cory Booker was talking and uh, Kamala Harris, who I'm going to talk about here in a second, talking about how they shouldn't, he shouldn't be close to the president or something. But if one of those two people do end up in the Oval Office, just the same way that Eric Holder was extremely in line and aligned with Barack Obama and his administration, they're going to have the exact same request for them. So elections have consequences. I think William Barr probably would have been nominated if any Republican got in. So as mm-hmm. far as like Whitaker right now, who is currently there, everyone agrees he is solely there <laughs> yes. um, because he's a stooge for Trump. Just a straight-up uh, henchman. He's just a straight, yeah, just a straight-up henchman. Didn't, didn't pretend to hide it, and Donald Trump didn't pretend to hide why he hired him as well. And, of course, that caused a lot of blowback. But William Barr will most likely be uh, the next attorney general, again, barring something extreme, uh, but I don't really foresee that happening. So let's move on. I want to talk a little bit about Steve King, and then I want to talk about Kamala Harris, and then we'll get to our interview with Miss Chowdhury. Okay, so first of all, Let's talk about Steve King. Now, of course, this dude, he's out of Iowa. He has been around for quite a while in conservative circles. He's famous. And, uh, of course, he's famous because uh, of his rhetoric. His rhetoric has been, it's just, I don't even, you know me, I don't like turn, like, I'm not like, everything is racist. Everyone's a racist. No, but Steve King is a notable racist, and he seems now to embrace it so much so uh, that he gave an interview and decried the denouncing <laughs> of terms like white nationalist. Yeah. Um, and it's just, uh, or white supremacy. The fact that he just <laughs> gave, he's like, but why? Why did, is it when, so bad? When did white supremacy get such a bad rap? When did it get such a bad rap? I, You know what? I can point to a certain era in history and a very recent era in history to go along with the one that I'm sure you know about, of course, uh, in the in the in the old 40s there. Uh, We have we have last year, I guess two years ago now, Charlottesville. I mean, absolutely horrible. Um, So House Republican leaders, of course, chanting Jews will not replace us blood and soil, all this jackassy stuff. So House Republicans did finally do something about Steve King's horrible, horrible racist uh, rhetoric. And I hope the people of Iowa uh, in his district, like, if you want, if you will only vote a Republican, get a Republican to at least primary this guy. He is a horrible representative of the Republican Party, but without a doubt he is representative of a sect of the Republican Party. So House Republican leaders finally removed Steve King from the Judiciary and Agriculture Committees on Monday night. This is according to minority leader uh, Kevin McCarthy. Uh, He's a rep out of California. He says, this is not the first time we've heard these comments. Uh, He goes on to say, that is not the party of Lincoln, and it's definitely not America. So finally, there are some ramifications for Steve King's uh, words. So we'll see what the people of Iowa decide uh, when it comes to his political leadership going forward. If they want to be in a district repped by this guy, I suppose he'll continue to be there, but hopefully 
uh, they have an Oprah aha moment and just say, let's get someone who doesn't, uh, na- who doesn't, first of all, make us look horrible nationally and then embrace things like white supremacy. Um, you know, it's just a bad look. I'm just well, going to go. I know it's a bold stance. Another Ben Kissel bold stance. I'm going to say it's a bad look. He only narrowly did win his uh Well, the first time he won, it's interesting. The first time he won, it was well into the double digits. And now he won by around three percentage points. So he did win the fourth district of Iowa by a much, much slimmer margin uh, than he had won it previously. So it does seem like his rhetoric is getting tired and people want to move on from the guy who is now just so brazen with the idea of white supremacy. He just feels comfortable saying it in an interview but you know what at least we know where he stands uh, at least we know who he is and now the people in the in the fourth district uh there in iowa can um you know now you i mean if you didn't know before which if you read his tweets and just other comments i mean his rhetoric has been embracing of uh white nationalism for a He's- real real long time which is of course uh offensive in many ways but the people in the fourth district now after given this i mean come on Hopefully they can make a better decision. He literally called Mexican immigrants dirt people. Yeah, that's right. That was the most, that was another, that was another recent one. And of course, you know, head of the snake, a lot of this is trickle down uh, rhetoric that Trump has normalized to the degree where, again, this guy feels comfortable going into a national media event and saying something like this. I know the people of Iowa, there there are so many great people out there. So I am, I'm assuming uh, the fourth district will have a change of leadership coming up here in the very near future. I want to talk a little bit about what's going on right now with the Democratic Party and my concerns that this is going to be nasty are coming true. Uh, Basically, we have Tulsi Gabbard. She has said that she's going to run for office now. She's going to run for president. And she's taking a lot of heat from people on the left um, because she had some homophobic um, Mm -hmm. positions she held around 10 years ago or so. Um, And since then, she has changed on this issue. Again, people evolve. People change. I am a lot different than I was 10 years ago. And I think she changed for the better. I would say we can't. We're not electing 10 years ago Tulsi Gabbard. We want to be careful not to just throw everybody under the bus. Uh, Of course, she did. It wasn't just rhetoric. It was also, she also uh, advocated and her parents advocated for a thing called conversion therapy. Now, conversion therapy is absolutely horrendous. Uh, It it doesn't work. It's what uh, Michelle Bachman's husband uh, did at his Christian therapy group. And it it really is, it's a true form of torture. So I completely and utterly disagree with her on that. So that's that's a little bit of her baggage. Um, Other than that, I think she has uh, a little, she's got some explaining to do when it comes to Syria. Uh, I think that the idea of Assad taking more control over his nation, I'm not necessarily against that. I think we've spent too much money, we've lost too many lives over there. So, but she has to explain that position on the uh, foreign policy perspective. Now, Tulsi has also sort of started a fight with Kamala Harris. Now, Kamala Harris, she said that a someone who's going to be nominated for the judiciary shouldn't be allowed to because they're part of the Knights of Columbus. The Knights of Columbus, they're a pretty famous Catholic group. They're not really, they're, I mean, they're Catholic, so they're going to be pro-life and more for traditional marriage and things like that, I would assume. Um, but she's like, she criticized it for being an all-male group, but it's a fraternal organization, so it's a that that term fraternal you know um that would it's yes that that is what that is but kamala harris has a lot of real baggage as well and dare i say worse baggage when she was the ag in california she had a program that literally separated truant children from their parents so basically if a kid was regularly truant to school 
her big idea was to charge this family. Now, most of these families are poor. They tend to be folks of color. They don't got a lot of lot going on uh, financially. So she charged them $2,000, the $2,000 fine if their child was consistently truant. And also, they would face up to one year in prison. So you tell me how that makes any sense. This is according to her. Uh, This is from Kamala Harris. She says, we are putting parents on notice. If you fail in your responsibility to your kids, we are going to work to make sure you face the full force and consequences of the law. This, she goes on, if you are chronically truant from elementary school, you are four times more likely to drop out and become a perpetrator or a victim of crime. Okay, I can I, I agree with her there. Sure. But now this is where uh, I completely and utterly disagree. She says, that's why we're taking on the truancy crisis in the California Department of Justice. And that campaign, again, as I mentioned, called for a $2,000 fine and up to one year in prison for parents. Absolutely not the way to solve the truancy crisis, taking these kids away or taking their parents away from them so that then they would go into the foster care system, have less accountability than ever before. Um, It's absolutely ridiculous. Also, as a prosecutor, uh, Kamala Harris was extremely, extremely strict. Uh, this is according. This is another quote from her. She says, "Getting smart on crime does not mean reducing sentences, sentences or punishment for crimes." This is her website. It outlines Kamala believes that we must maintain a relentless focus on reducing violence and aggressively prosecuting violent criminals. Fittingly, when she became the San Francisco DA, the felony conviction rate rose from fifty-two percent to 67% in three years. In practice, Harris defended California's uniquely cruel three strikes law, the only one in the country which imposed life sentences for a third strike that was any minor felony. She urged voters to reject Proposition 66, a ballot initiative that would have reformed the harsh law by making only serious or violent felonies trigger life sentences. Harris promised that if voters rejected the initiative, she would put forward her own different reform. So there you go. Uh, When it comes to all of these candidates that are going to be running for the Democratic Party, uh, we're going to find whether it be Elizabeth Warren's ridiculous uh, Native American stuff, which I don't just shut up about. (laughs) I mean, honestly, Elizabeth Warren, follow her on Instagram. She's doing a pretty good job. Her Insta stories are like she's humanizing herself to me. My my cold, cold. In enlarged heart is warming towards her, the, but, but I think there, the, you're the, never going to find a perfect candidate. That's all I'm going to say. So please focus on policies when it comes to Tulsi. Uh, you know, uh, people change. Um, that wasn't a policy that she had in order. She's she has been good uh, when it comes to being in office and standing up for people. Policies matter. And when it comes to Kamala Harris, I, I hate the fact that she actually put those policies into play, and she was just so bullish on uh, criminal justice. I mean, it makes me really, it really, as someone who was a criminal just, justice reform advocate, it really does anger me. Real Judge Dredd vibes. Real, I mean, like, yeah, and of course she's supposed to be this big savior. And as I mentioned earlier with Marcus, um, that's why, that's exactly what happened with Bill Clinton. Why did why did the three strikes law come under a Democratic president? Because he ran very bullish on criminal justice. And if you go back and you watch his first State of the Union, it reads like, 
a conservative Republican uh, just took over. And um, and it's absolutely horrendous. So hopefully the Democratic Party doesn't go down that road again. And I think Kamala Harris uh, is a potential step in that direction. So that's that's my uh, that's my issue on that. Um, when it comes to criminal justice reform, interestingly enough, we have this interview coming up now with Rabia Chowdhury. And we talk. I did mention uh, about uh, Trump's criminal justice reform, and she did say a broken clock was right twice a day. And I think we can all agree with that. <laughs> and lastly, I just want to say, when it comes to criticizing Trump. Have to win the argument. I watched a great documentary called Hillbilly. You want to be seen as someone who understands the issues. So it's it's good to start with something like I agree with two of the things that Trump did, like music modern, like the Music Modernization Act and the Criminal Justice Bill. And then when you talk about immigration, when you talk about his horrible tax plan that didn't make uh, the uh, tax cuts permanent for the middle class that doesn't allow you to write off unlimited amounts of money when it comes to salt or state and local taxes. They cap that at 10 K when it comes to his horrendous ideas uh, on the economy in many, many ways when it comes to his complete and utter inability to govern, hence the longest shutdown in U S history, they'll make, they'll listen to you more um, because the the blind rage is one thing, but I I just think it helps because then I don't know. It's just like a nice little in, you know, because then it, you can have a little little bridge and then hopefully maybe you can change someone's mind on you know his horrific immigration policies which is targeting the most vulnerable people in this country his his approval ratings are plummeting plummeting oh yeah no he's going to take right now uh it's uh around 29% only 29% blame the democratic party for the shutdown so he's about 71% blame as it should be, because he is the president, and he can open the government whenever he wants. At a certain point, um, we'll see, like, it'll cleave right to the bone, and we'll see, like, the amount of people that are his, like, cult-like totally. followers. Well, that's what we've been talking about for the longest time. He hasn't expanded the base. Uh, he has shrunk the base. He has shed voters, specifically suburban uh, voters, both men and women, uh, more more women. Um, and that's why we had what we had in 2018. So I don't see him growing the base whatsoever. Hi guys, it's Carolina Hidalgo from Last Podcast Network. I co-host a weekly podcast called Movie Sign with the Mads with Frank Conniff and Trace Bellew, the original mad scientist from the hit cult TV show, Mystery Science Theater 3000. That's right, TV's Frank and Dr. Clayton Forrester, along with myself, spend each week discussing and thoroughly dissecting a movie we've recently seen. The premise of our show is very complicated. I hope you can pay attention. We come in once a week and talk about a movie. Okay, I hope you could keep up with that. Past episodes included classics like Taxi Driver, The Godfather, and Sunset Boulevard to our live show recordings of The Shining, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, and Close Encounters of the Third Kind, to newer releases like The Shape of Water, Hereditary, Get Out, and Mandy. Some we like, some we don't. We agree, we disagree. But in the end, it's all about movies and you, the viewer, and your suggestions. The viewer, no, it doesn't come through that way. It's on the radio. It's on a podcast. A podcast, and it's free. There's no real continuity between the episodes, so click on the movie episode you'd like to hear about. Check us out on iTunes, SoundCloud, wherever you can find podcasts, or just look for us on lastpodcastnetwork.com under shows. Thanks, everyone.
Hey, what's up, everyone? I am honored to have with me now. Uh, she is a superstar, New York Times bestselling author. She wrote Adnan's story, The Search for Truth and Justice uh, After Serial, a book about the criminal case of her friend Adnan Syed. Uh, she also hosts a podcast called Undisclosed, which I highly recommend. It's absolutely awesome. Rabia Chaudhry is with me. Thank you so much for being on the show. Hi, Ben. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So um, obviously right now I want to talk to you about criminal justice reform. Um, it's it's an, a never-ending issue in this country with privatized prisons, GO Group, Core Civic, uh, the monetization of human suffering. I would love to hear your thoughts on this. I failed to mention you're also a lawyer. You do it all. Um, but let's start this conversation with the border, specifically what's happening on the southern border. Naturally, it's believe it or not, we're not talking about the northern border. I don't know why. With what's going on when it comes to the detainment of children, family separation, as we mentioned before, uh, the interview, the Walmart superstore that has been converted into a prison for kids. When it comes to what's happening here, what are your thoughts on uh, how drastic and horrible this humanitarian crisis has become? So, you know, before um, I get into kind of the specifics of what's happening right now, I just want to set a little bit of context so that uh, listeners understand. Most people are familiar with me because of Adnan's case, because of serial and stuff. But I practiced federal immigration law for 14 years. And awesome. I began practicing. Um, yeah, I've I, I worked in the field of immigration since before 9-11. So wow. I have been, I kind of have a, a, a longer view of the trajectory of immigration, immigration law right. and policy, uh, and all of these things, and how they all have almost always uh, intersected with national security issues, specifically uh -huh. after 9 11, right. and how they become politicized. And basically, since 9 11, I mean, you've seen even before that, but, but since 9 11, you really saw how politicians use immigration powers to enforce things like national security and criminal right. justice laws and all that and the intersection of all these things. Um, so, yeah, you know, having said that, you know, when Obama was uh, in power, there were immigration rights groups and immigrant rights groups that called him deporter-in-chief. Right, right. Because de deport remo and, and we say deportation, but technically the term is removal, so I'm going to use removal. As a lawyer, I should get it right. <laughs> removals were up. Removals were up, but the thing is this, that his administration had very specific policy. They had given directives to Homeland Security to say, you're going to prioritize criminal offenders. Right, so right. somebody is a undocumented immigrant or an alien uh, who has some kind of, you know, issues with his immigration, and they are violent criminal offenders, right. they're the ones we're going to focus on. Yes. They kind of had an unstated policy. They kind of didn't touch most other people who were like not offenders or students who overstayed or children and certainly not asylum seekers. Right. And of course, I mean, with Obama to sort of balance out his uh, what what many people on the left thought to be a more hawkish uh, deportation or removal policy, he balanced that out with something such as DACA, which, of course, he did with the uh, use of an executive order. So. Um, right. So what are some of the main what are some of the changes uh, that we're seeing now? Um, well, you know, gosh, how, where do you start? I mean, it starts, well, it began with the rhetoric, obviously, before the, you know, before the election, before right. 2016. I mean, uh, the, the rhetoric itself was so alarming to me. And I remember at the time, I, w I would say to people, first of all, I didn't really think that Trump would win. Right. But I, I, I would say to people over and over, what people don't understand about immigration law is it's so discretionary. It is so easy to change a law with executive orders and right. other and just got policy guidance. It's very, what's on the books is very vague. So mm -hmm. an admin, the executive power allows 
a lot of leeway um, to make decisions about how it's going to go. Right. And I kept trying to like talk to people and say, and even post online and say, you guys, it sounds crazy what he says he's going to do, but he can actually do this if he right. wins. Uh, and so and we're seeing this. I mean, the family, the mandatory family separation policy, um, God, it's it's so un-American and horrific right. and shameful yes. for our nation as like supposed to be the beacon of freedom around the world. Right. Um, that's unheard of. It's not that it didn't happen at all before. It did not happen as a matter of mandatory policy before. It would right. happen if you have children who are unaccompanied, not children coming with parents. That didn't happen like that. Right. Um, and to make it mandatory, uh, turning away asylum uh, seekers, unheard of, you know, right. um, the cu- shutting down refugees. I mean, not and the Muslim ban. Of it, course. It, it, is an, it, it exists. You know, it ha- it, this is a thing. The courts have allowed him to do this. Of course, the seven, uh, the seven nations that he, uh, that he banned travel from, majority Muslim nations, his own words were in calling it a Muslim ban. So naturally, they tried to backtrack and say this is about national security. Well, he's the one who branded it a Muslim uh, ban. I would be interested to hear your thoughts because you have such a long history of work in this field. Post 9-11, the anti-Muslim rhetoric was was through the roof. Uh, There was so much anger. There was a lot of acts of violence against the Muslim community. We saw it in Wisconsin more uh, recently with the Sikh shooting. Of course, Sikh, a religion of complete peace. Uh, Not, I mean, that's how ignorant so many people are. White supremacists can't even get it right on who to hate. Um, Do you see any parallels with the rhetoric of what happened to the Muslim population in the early 2000s and what we're seeing now, specifically with uh, Hispanic, Ecuadorian, uh, you know, Mexican um, immigrants? You know, the interesting thing about the anti-Muslim sentiment in terms of polling and even hate crimes and stuff like that after 9-11 compared to today is that it was much less after 9-11. Mm. The, it's actually increased over the years. I mean, for I think just two years ago, a poll was taken and the majority of Republicans, Republicans polled said that they would not, that Muslims should not be allowed to run for office and should not be allowed to become citizens. <sighs> that kind of, that kind of, and because I will say this, you know, just George Bush destroyed the entire Middle East, uh, the entire, yeah. stabilized the entire region, absolutely, and killed you know hundreds of thousands of people. But he was very, very. He he visited a mosque shortly after nine eleven. He very specifically said this is not a war against Islam. Yeah. He uh, continued. He continued to host events for Muslims at the White House. Right. He. This is what we're seeing is a whole different thing. But since that time, people who uh, had an agenda of anti-immigrant and anti-Muslim kind of, you know, activism, because by the way, mm. a lot of these people work in the same spaces. It's like incestuous. They kind of all work together. They are funded very, by similar, uh, people. Right. Right. Um, they saw, they saw, they saw an opportunity and they use that opportunity. So over time it got easier and easier for mm-hmm. politicians to get in front of a camera and say terrible things right. about Muslims. Whereas right after 9-11, people were much more careful, but yeah. now, you can get away with a lot more because here we are. Now, Nazis are not such bad people. I mean, like, this is how it's happened. That is absolutely, that's absolutely accurate. Um, when it comes to people like, you know, Stephen Miller being uh, in the ear of Donald Trump, obviously right. Donald Trump knows the alt-right makes up a, a cornerstone of his small but uh, passionate political base. He knows he can't turn his back on them. Hence, uh, you know, as soon as Ann Coulter and Hannity got upset that he might compromise with the wall, he uh, put his tail between his legs and uh, refused to do anything moderate or at least mildly reasonable. Do you see with the polling data right now, Republicans, 88 percent like Donald Trump? That's why, hey, good luck primarying the dude. 
He is the face of the Republican Party. When we hear stories about the horror stories in my mind, but about child separation, about not allowing people to seek asylum who are physically being abused, going to go back to a nation where they perhaps be murdered. Is that a political winner for Donald Trump in some perverted way? Oh, it's a, it's this. It works. It worked for him. It clearly worked for him in in the presidential election. And it continues to work for him. That's why these. I don't think Donald Trump really cares about a wall. In fact, I think Trump knows as well as anybody else does. A wall is not going to have any really real impact. Number one, we are at hist- we are forty six year lows uh, in terms of like uh, crossings of undocumented immer- yeah. um, migrants into the country. Right. At a forty six year low. Right. There is no crisis. What yeah. he's doing right now, uh, you know, he, maybe he's distracting from some of the other issues. Right. He's confronting in the shutdown thing. He is absolutely appealing to his base. And this is a man who his ego needs to be fed constantly. Ugh. And the only way it can be fed right now is through the base. As right. far as the 88 percent, the poll members, Republicans, I will say this. There's a reason Mitch McConnell and others who you think would have enough Ugh. experience and sense and wisdom to know better. Right. This man has he has delivered Supreme Court justices. Yeah. He is delivering uh, political. You know, they, they, they see the possibility of Roe versus Wade being overturned. Right, they right. see all this this conservative agenda, uh, one way or the other, coming to fruition yep. because of him. And I and and I and I, I think one of the most shocking things for me is seeing evangelical support yeah. uh, for this man where they say, well, you know, he might be evil, but God's using him for good. Well, absolutely. And to, and to your, uh, and <laughs> I mean, it's in, it's insane. Uh, I grew up in an evangelical home and uh, abortion is oh, the, it's many a, apologies. Sorry. Oh, it's okay. I mean, it was, it was an interesting childhood, uh, but it's a single issue voting block. And of course that issue is, is, as you mentioned, Roe v. Wade, it is abortion. So they will, everything else is just periphery. Right. They, they are focused on, one issue, and Donald Trump is yeah. definitely someone who would, uh, you know, give them uh, more political victories on that subject. When it comes to the border crossing, absolutely. Uh, in 2000, it was around 1.6 million. Now we're down to 400,000. So without a doubt, this right. is a manufactured crisis. And going back to that uh, evangelical base, I would love to hear your thoughts just kind of from the religious perspective. When he said that he thinks China the Chinese government, Xi Jinping, leader for life, when he said that they were better than the opposition party, the Democrats, China currently is imprisoning Muslims, uh, Christians. They're tearing down mosques and churches. Uh, they want a, yeah. they want the state to be honored at all, above all. How can an evangelical or uh, perhaps I don't know if there's much support amongst the Muslim community. I, I, I don't think there's I don't think that's a big voting block for Trump. But how could no, the evangelical no. community? square that idea uh and and what kind of if you want to talk a little bit about like how ex- re- religious extremism poisons the brain it does and it does across every religion and you actually in the last night and i worked um in the space of cve which is counting on extremism and, and cve policy for about six years in fact i two years ago i did a international study on the rise of ideological extremism in religious communities mm. and if you look at like and I, my study was based at a in Pakistan, regions of Pakistan, where there's a rise in Sunni extremism, mm-hmm. conservative, uh, conservative extremism, but also Sri Lanka, where people think Buddhists are no, there is a very violent strain and conservative strain of Buddhism that is right. killing Christians and Muslims in Sri Lanka. Right. In Myanmar, we see this. We see this with Buddhists in Myanmar who are killing the Rohingya mm. um, Muslims and. In Israel, the right there's a rise of the right. In Europe, there's a rise of the right. right. It's kind of a global phenomenon we're seeing, yeah. which is terrifying. 
But, you know, I don't know how evangelicals can square, uh, evangelicals can square this. And I'll be honest, I, you know, but I think everybody kind of has a blind spot. I studied, um, I studied with an Israeli institute. I studied um, Judaism in Israel for a year. Okay. Um, and one of the most fascinating things for me, because, you know, for me, I'm, I'm an American Muslim. I have been very deeply steeped in Palestinian activism and stuff and pro-Palestinian activism. Right. And I wanted to really explore how American Jews and Israeli Jews understood the state of Israel vis-a-vis their religion. Right. And one of the most fascinating things to me was the welcome, how, how right-wing Israelis will welcome evangelical support of Israel, even though yes. they know that the reason for that support is to, to usher in the second coming, which will effectively destroy the Jews. Absolutely. Okay? <laughs> so, which is, of course, why why they moved the uh, the capital uh, to Jerusalem. Yeah. There's no right. reason for it other than this no. sort of fantastical idea yeah. uh, that this mythical creature uh, will uh, descend from the heavens and cause a global war until peace happens. I, I think I, if I understand but, but, that but right. I, I want to shake... I want to shake Israeli Jews and say they're only supporting you so they can destroy you. Do you know what yeah, I'm saying? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what is wrong with It's so backwards. Yeah, it's it's complicated. When, but, but this is a very, uh, you know, uh, science shows that people who are like that, they have very similar kind of brain chemistry, very black and white thinking. Right. Um, it's just different, different flavors of the ideological extremism, but they're very similar um, mostly across the board. So, you know, what's fascinating uh, to me is the the rise of information, the information age, the the Internet utopians, many of whom have, who have apologized uh, because the Internet might not be the utopian dream uh, that they had hoped it would be because it's just an extension of humanity. And we are still a deeply flawed species. Um with all of this new information out there, you can do research, you can learn about different groups of people that previously you might not have known about. Theoretically, this should make you more open-minded. Do you think there's some correlation with the bombardment of information that people are kind of shelling up a little bit and saying, I I can't handle all of this, so I am going back, no more gray, we're going back to black and white when it comes to philosophy and thinking? I think that is a real. There is definitely um, such a thing as being overwhelmed. I think there's an there's an enormous amount of information. I think most people look. I I still am not so skeptical that I think people are terrible people. I think most people are are kind of naive and they look to their leadership. Right. Be like, what? Who, who? Where should I get my information? Yeah. Uh, who should I tr- Who should I trust? When you have a thousand different sources on one story, who do you trust? Right. And what I've realized is this. At the end of the day, and the science shows us, the data backs it up, facts never change a person's mind or heart. Facts don't do it. It's always experiential. So, for example, it's, it's you know, a person might support a Muslim ban if they hear the rhetoric, but you can give them all the facts. You can say, this is there's like zero Muslim terrorism in the United States the last two years. You can give them all the facts. That right, Muslim right. immigrants are some of the safest. You can give them all the facts. It's not going to matter. What's going to matter is, they, if their neighbor is a Muslim, if a doctor is a Muslim, if, they, right. if a person knows one person, just one person in their life, that's what will make them think, you know what, I don't really believe that, because I've known this guy for a few years, and he seems okay. Right. It's like there's a lot of information, and I think people, you can't can't really make informed decisions on that information right. without understanding what their life experience is. Well, as we become a society that is obviously uh, more diverse than ever, um, when it comes to Hispanics now, uh, being on the crosshairs, of course, the vast majority of people who are here um, undocumented. It's visa overstays. Uh, more more terrorists have been reported coming from our northern border in Canada than the southern border. Going back to misinformation, uh, the Trump uh, administration saying there was 400,000 stops 
uh, when it comes to people on the terror watch list, absolutely insane when they the actual number is literally six. Can I tell you, the FBI, for over a decade, maybe even more than two decades, at least 10 to 12 years, the FBI itself reports that the greatest domestic threat comes from white nationalist supremacist groups. And as we're seeing on a regular basis, I mean, how many more... Right. Uh, you know, Charlottesville's do we have to have? Obviously, Las Vegas. I, I, I don't know what the political ideology of that guy was, um, but right. the the action's the same as a terrorist to me. After Obama was elected, the, the um and the um, Southern Poverty Law Center documented fifteen hundred new white nationalist militia groups. These are groups that right. are heavily armed. That actually, tra- they have training camps in like, you know, in the woods somewhere. Truly, yeah. Like people, and and. and and they really are preparing. These are groups actually preparing for some kind of another civil war. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, they're going to bring it upon themselves to see that come to fruition. And that's one of the ironies going back to what you were talking about regarding evangelicals. My parents used to say, don't even worry about going to college. The world could end tomorrow. And if you look at mm-hmm. uh, the conservative stance on the environment, uh, you know, on war and peace, um, it seems like they're pushing for it fairly hard right. to just kind of, you know, right. make that dream. Uh, a reality when it comes to white militia groups obviously you have things like proud boys which is done under the guise of humor um but is obviously a very dangerous dangerous group um of morons and they are stupid but the most dangerous people tend to be quite dumb as well um when we see what happened in charlottesville with the rise of the alt-right and now that coinciding perfectly with the with the rise of resentment towards the immigrant community has it been able to uh, work so well, the demonizing of undocumented workers, the immigrant community in general, because of what we're seeing regarding automation, because of what we're seeing because of um, just the overall uh, lack of humanity that comes with corporate America or working for these large corporations? They no longer treat anyone like they're a human being. The idea of starting at one company and ending with that company and trusting that they're going to give you retirement is gone. There are real issues that people should be upset about. But do you feel like those are going back to the black and white idea? Those are now gone because people can't handle thinking about that. And they channel all that anger they should have for a system that is set up to screw them over to these undocumented people or just immigrant groups in general? Well, you know, the thing is this, what, what groups with an agenda have done very successfully, and social media has a lot to do with this, and the Internet has a lot to do with this, is say all those grievances you have, you know who's to blame? It's the brown people. It's right. affirmative action. It's immigration. So it's not that suddenly they don't care about the grievances, but suddenly they think, oh, I don't have health care because – some undocumented kid in California has got the help. No, that's not no, it's how not. it works at all. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But they have they found a scapegoat. And, you know, it's interesting when you study white supremacy, the reason even poor whites who are, I will say, even under this administration, are going to suffer more than us coastal elites ever will. Absolutely. You look at what they did with the tax breaks, the tax breaks not being permanent for the middle class. The, the middle class is right. basically gone. Um, it, it, uh, you look at what happened with farmers, as I mentioned, uh, the farmers, because right. of the tariffs, they said, we'll give you 12 billion bucks, but that 12 billion isn't coming because the government is shut down. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, all of the, you know, but, but here's the thing, the, the, the horrifying thing is people in that position who are poor whites will still identify right. with the rich whites over because, because in their head, they still think 
at least I'm not like a poor black, exactly. or I'm not a poor brown person. I'm still superior in some way because I have the promise of being that white rich person right. one day. Um, and the system still favors me. And the truth is the system does still favor you, right? If you're uh, a middle-aged white guy driving down the road, the cop pulls you over, you're not going to think, and neither am I, I might get killed. Um, so yeah, there are still systematic, you know, uh, advantages to obviously being white, whether or not you're poor or rich. So that's why, that's why they don't see it. Well, I will say when it comes to criminal justice, and I want to talk to you about what's going on on the border here, just coming up here in a second, but when it comes to criminal justice, there's a lot of poor whites incarcerated for for sure, crimes. Um, you know, over-incarceration is uh, absolutely an ec- uh, epidemic in this country. So, yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, but there, this the way it's set up right now with our criminal justice uh, suffering for profit system, it, it, it's affecting this entire nation. But I totally hear what you're yeah. saying when it comes to people yeah. identifying with someone like Donald Trump. Uh, they see him crapping in a gold toilet. I don't know if they see him. That 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 uh, he doesn't have right. Instagram yet. Otherwise, we'd probably see him. But they're not bothered by it. They're not bothered <laughs> because it's like playing. It's like playing the lotto. They look at him like a scratch off ticket, and they're like, any day, any day now, yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna get. Uh, yeah. I'm gonna get mine. I had a question as well. Uh, just sort of on a on an individual level, what are some of the ways that ethnic and religious biases sort of manifest in the in the in an actual courtroom situation? Because that's probably something that a lot of people are dealing with in immigration cases and criminal cases, at, such as Adnan's. Uh, I'm sure that uh, manifested in a number of ways. But uh, yeah. what are some of the ways that you would say you look for biases r- manifesting themselves in a courtroom? Right, right. Well, l- let me first make it clear that you know the 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 immigration system. When you talk about immigration courts, they're administrative courts. They're not criminal courts. Which means when a person has to go to immigration court, they have no right to counsel. They will be children standing in front of a judge with no right to counsel. Right. There's no right to, you know what I mean? So all, all the civil rights protections in a criminal procedure don't exist in immigration. So I'm just going to put immigration aside for a second. Okay. It's, it's a whole different beast. Gotcha. But when it, comes to, when it comes to criminal justice, I mean, all, the data is already there. People of color uh, for the same crimes will get higher sentences. Absolutely. And average about 10, 10% higher sentences. They also get hit with the most charges. For example, a prosecutor will... And prosecutors have the power to do this. They yeah. can they can tack on all kinds of charges, yeah. right? It'll be one thing. Oh, I you know you got caught with pot. Now it'll be resisting arrest. Yeah. Now it'll be this. Now it'll be, and uh, there's there's greater um, there's much more police brutality towards people of color. So then what happens is you have a person who's maybe fighting for their life or right. fighting back. Well, that's another charge right there. Yeah. So you know the thing is, any system, any one of these systems is made up of human beings, and right. those human beings at every level, whether it's a judge whether it's a jury member, whether it's a prosecutor, has comes to the proceeding with their own bias. Right. And in Adnan's case, um, in his trial, he was a 17-year-old American kid, okay, right. who had been to Pakistan like once in his life when he was 11. His religion and ethnicity came up 300 times in his trial. Oh, my God. It was a, it was a murder trial. There was literally no reason for it to come, other than what it did was it, it made the jury think Muslim guy... Right. killed a girl like Muslim men are violent yep. and when the jury was asked afterwards there were members of the jury who actually said well you know these Arabic people and he's not Arabic but these Arabic people they do hurt their women right. so yeah um, it's not hard to do it and prosecutors will play play that card absolutely and it happens with any group that is perceived to be other uh, we did a uh, sure. for last podcast on the left which is our, our main 
uh, crime show, we covered West Memphis 3, a solid three episodes. Oh, I love that kiss, yeah. Uh, it's fascinating. And the satanic panic, uh, you know, identifying them or framing them sure. as these Satanist kids as opposed to just, you know, wonderful, creative little nerd kids in a small town like all of us were. Um, that really was, that was what ended up putting them away. Um, because they yeah, weren't absolutely. like the rest, and now we have a. It was bullshit. It, there, it was horrible. When you don't have actual evidence, when you don't have actual evidence, you use this kind of fear mongering right. to fill in the blanks. And of course, yeah. that's well within the realm of legality when it comes to our uh, criminal justice system. Twelve. The older I get, the more I think that it is so stress inducing the idea of having your hands. Uh, or your life in the hands of 12 random people, <laughs> you know, <laughs> especially because right. you just never freaking know. Um, but let's go on and talk a little bit about what's happening right now regarding the border, regarding um, the, the where, literally Walmart superstore full of human beings. That's the new good. Uh, you know, we are as people, we our, our data is mined. We are the product. Uh, and when it comes to our criminal justice system, uh, we have 125,000 folks in private prisons, Geo Group, Core Civic, these um, horrible companies uh, that are publicly traded, which is abhorrent. Yeah, we are we are the good. Um, so just I would love to hear your thoughts on is there a possible uh, way to reform that? And and also, if you have any insight to what's the daily life like? in the lives of these children and in parents of these children, when they cross the border, uh, they're being processed and they get put in these horrific institutions. What, what does that reality look like? Well, you know, let me start with your first question on kind of criminal justice reform. And I think uh, the privatization of, um, of incarceration is actually just completely evil. Oh, uh, totally. And I think, yeah, I think in many other Western societies we could look at um, they would consider it abhorrent and immoral, yeah. and they would never do it. And right. they don't do it because they don't think about incarceration as punitive. They think about it as rehabilitative. And so we have turned it into a business. Yeah. This is a business now. I mean, people are making hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars yep. um, on these people suffering. And we are all we're doing is dam- we're, we're damaging people then putting them back into society. Right. And actually, that's what we're doing with these children, too. Yep. But I'll say this. When people ask me where, how, like, criminal justice issues are so vast, like, Every step of the way, bail, bonds, and cars, like all yeah. of it's a mess. What, where, where do you start with reform? Right. You can always tell. You don't need a Google map to tell you when you're near a courthouse. As soon as you start seeing the bail bond stores that just circle the, stores, the courthouse, yeah. you know you're yeah. around a jail yeah. somewhere. Yeah. Cash bail is a, is a real issue. Well, let me tell you, the most we've been waiting and we've been thinking about this very wrong, really, in the last, I'd say, 20, 30 years. We've been thinking about it top down, the federal government, state legislation. No, the power is with your your counties, your state attorney, mm. your district attorney. If you, if the, if the right DA gets elected, it's something as simple and as local as that. That DA has the power to turn that prosecuting office, that office, upside down. Uh, case in point, um, mm. all your listeners, if you're interested in this, uh, look up Larry Krasner in Philadelphia. Okay. This guy, this guy has is the model. If I could take him and plug a Larry Krasner into every district attorney office in this country, we would we would completely the system would be reformed. Well, what what did he do? I'll tell you. So Larry Krasner. See, the thing is, only prosecutors run. People who are career prosecutors run for these positions. Right. It's the same people. It's incestuous. Yeah. What Larry Krasner did was he was, he was a career criminal defense attorney. Okay. In his career, in his in his career, he had sued the Philadelphia Police Department seventy five times civil rights attorney. He's like, screw it. I'm running for this position so I have the power. 
He ran. He won. Wow. And Philadelphia is one of the most cor- Philadelphia is a historically corrupt yeah. DA's office. As soon as he got in there, he made a list of police officers who he knew uh, were known to test a lie during their testimony. He's like, their, he's like, their testimony will never be accepted to prosecute a case. Number one. Number two, he cleaned house. He got rid of all the prosecutors he knew were shady. Wow. Number three, he's like, I will, he's like, I will not char- press charges against marijuana possession. I don't care if it's a crime in this state. I'm not going to do it. Right, right. Before he got rid of cash bail. Within six months, it's amazing what he has achieved. Yeah. In, in just, it's, well, it's been a year now, but the first six months, he cleaned house. Look him up. Yeah, I will. Incredible. Yeah. yeah. And this is, and we've seen since that in the midterms, there were a number, about two or three other very progressive DAs that have been elected. And I urge people look very carefully at who your district attorney right. is. A lot of times it'll be the same person for like 30 years. Yeah. Get rid of them. Get rid of them. That is awesome. And that when we talk about politics, obviously we always talk about or usually talk about it in the macro. Local politics, that's where you see real change. So absolutely. That, that is absolutely wonderful. I want to be Attorney General of Maryland one day. <laughs> I would <laughs> love it. Well, you have my support. I don't know if, you know what I'll do? I'll, I'll do you a big favor. I'll, I'll throw my support for your opponent. I'll cost him 100,000 votes. It'll be perfect. Perfect. You'll be like, you're associated with Ben Kissel. Uh, there's no way we can trust him. You can sneak in the back <laughs> that way. Um, yes, and of course, when it comes to prosecutors, uh, when it, going back to the West Memphis Three, for example, the medical examiner, and um, they're all part of the prosecution, which is totally nefarious. And uh, it, it just makes the defense so much smaller. And so it's just so much more unfair. Yeah, because you're fighting blind. I mean, right. you know, prosecutors are the ones, they have the evidence because the police gave it to them. Right. And you can't get it unless they decide to give it to you. And in Adnan's case, we had very similar. The DNA was never tested. It's a murder case. The girl, this poor victim, her body, they took a rape kit. Never tested because the prosecutor told the medical examiner, do not test. Wow. I mean, so, you know, how do you you got to get rid of people like that. Abs- absolutely. And I would love if you came on Side Stories uh, to talk about Anand's case in depth. If you want sure. to do that, that would be so awesome. Yeah, the documentary series is coming out on HBO in March. Oh, my God, um, that would be awesome. And then it's going to be great, yeah. There's a lot more there. We can do some promo, and I know our audience is sure. – I'm sure they're already going to watch it, but if one person was on the fence, uh, we can we can push them over to the side of yes. <laughs> I'd love to come. Just briefly here about immigration on the southern border. Can you talk a little bit about that second question of mine regarding right. what is the – what? because I see these images. My parents did foster care when I was growing up, and we took in countless uh, children that were abused and uh, a lot of sexual abuse and, and devastating things like that. And my heart, when I see these kids, um, and I know there's some media manipulation and all that kind of stuff, but my God, it just freaking breaks. And so I just, but I don't know what happens once they go behind the walls. I don't, I just, you don't see a lot of footage. So do you have any insight into that? You know, I, because this is not something that I've done personally, I have not gone there you know, and, and done the work on the ground there. But I'll tell you kind of in generally what happens okay. and from the reporting that I've read and also from some of my colleagues who have been doing work um, right there locally. Okay. Um, so the, the children are turned over to, um, well, here's the thing. Not only are the children separated, I mean, you're, you're talking about the Walmart thing. Many of the children are sent to con, uh, facilities that are contracted. These are also private facilities oh. that are contracted to take care of these children. Right. Uh, many times, so they're separated almost immediately. They're put into a juvenile facility. Then it's decided where they're going to be shipped. These children are often shipped. I mean, they're, they're kids who come in through the Southern border who are now in Maryland, who are wow. in Connecticut, who are in New York, who, right. in, who are in Michigan. They are, and they will be taken like in the middle of the night, woken up, 
and just put on a plane. Um, and people have seen them. People have taken even pictures that this is like a group. You could tell it was like 13 young Latino children in the middle of the night being put on a plane. They just fly to, commercial? You know, they just fly on a Delta flight? Exactly. Oh, yep, my exactly. God. Yeah, that's what they do. Okay. Uh, but they'll do it late at night so nobody can. And, and there are advocacy groups that have tried to follow and, and, and you know, from a distance film and stuff to show it because it's heartbreaking to watch. A yeah. lot of times they'll be kind of all wearing the same baggy sweatshirts. Little girls will have like a teddy bear or something. Right. But, the, you know, what I think about when I think about this stuff, and I want to, um, one thing I want to point out, because of, I don't know if it was budget reasons or policy reasons, but for some reason, about four or five months ago, this administration decided to cut, oh, I know what it was, I read it, it's because of their, they're so overwhelmed by the number of children, they need so much staffing to handle the children, they put a hold on background checks for the people who are now working with these children. Oh my God. I want you to imagine. Might as well just put a sign out that says, pedophiles welcome. Welcome. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And there have been absolute many cases, and, and even before this, but there have been documented cases. And we know two children have died recently, but of sexual abuse. Yeah, yeah. We Ugh. just last week CNN showed uh, footage of physical abuse. Uh, this little yeah. child being dragged around by these big grown-ups. The trauma yeah. that they're causing from—it's traumatic enough for a child to be taken because these are not mostly children who are just come to be taken away from a parent. That's one trauma. Then to be not given like proper facilities, you know, behind cages. I mean, like in it's the trauma that they're, they're damaging these children. And I don't know how they're ever going to recover because these are, this is lifelong trauma. I mean, I, I, you know, I have experience with people who have been traumatized as children and the kinds of, impact it has 40, 50 years later on their lives and the kinds of therapy yep. and support it needs for them to just be healthy. Right. Um, it's devastating. And so I really fear for what's going to happen in about 10, 15 years with these kids. Absolutely. I, I could not agree with you more. And when we talk about the perfect recipe to create somebody who might have negative sentiment towards this country, well, they're pretty much, they're pretty much putting all the right uh, ingredients together. You know, I mean, these kids, if they do yeah. go through the foster care system, I, we did. there are some great foster care uh, parents out there. I, I really sure. hope that we did a great sure. job. I, I still have a, my 26 years old now is the, is the boy that we had since he was two, my little, my little guy. But, um, wow. you know, uh, <laughs> there are also a lot of foster care homes that do it for profit. And there sure. are a lot of foster care homes. My friend Monroe Martin is a great stand-up comedian. You know, uh, he finally settled, finally got settled into a nice house. But the stories... Uh, that he tells about about some foster care homes are just hellacious. And you just wonder, when can this cycle change uh, for these poor kids? I mean, you know, w- one of the, 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 the thing about this is that, you know, this administration is being run by people who don't care about information and experience and they've gotten rid and, and so much senior, so many senior executives in the le- you know in, in the executive branch have left from Homeland Security. I work. I've worked in D.C. for a long time. I live. R- Most of my colleagues and friends work somewhere in the federal government. Right. And it was an exit. It was an exodus of people who knew what they were doing. Right. So what you have is people who have no idea what they're doing, making just off the cuff decisions and not thinking about long term repercussions. I mean, for example, when they did the mandatory separation, they said, okay, you know what we'll do? Then if there's family members here, if the kids are unaccompanied, family members can come forward and let us know that, well, you know what? Sometimes the family members are undocumented. Why would they come forward? Exactly. Are you kidding me? Like you, then they'll get arrested. Right. Um, and like they, they have never, they, they haven't thought of, and, and in court, it's been proven when the government was asked, like, what was your plan to reunify them? There were never was a plan. 
Exactly. There never was a plan. And that is yeah. that is so I mean, you you look at a shallow government like this one, they don't have nearly the uh the capabilities to do these things and they just do things uh uh, with the, with the click of a tweet, and that's exactly what it, when you're, right. a sh- you know, we we are uh, mirrors of our leadership, and right now this nation is as shallow as the one who is in the Oval Office. When it, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this. When it comes to, because I try to find the positives, I want to be an optimistic person. There was one positive thing, at least I thought, uh, that passed. It was a bipartisan bill. Uh, Trump signed it, the criminal justice bill. And basically some of the tenants, and I want to hear you if you think these tenants are, are good. Um, basically, it's going to do away with the three strikes and you're out, which happened under Bill Clinton, which I was not a fan of. Um, it, it also is going to give judges a little bit more leeway when it comes to mandatory minimums. Do you think, and I was telling my friend about this and I was like, I think that's a good thing. And then the, the flip argument is, well, what if judges are bad and they, and they increase, um, and they increase people's, uh, prison time uh, for committing a crime. What do you think about mandatory minimums specifically and giving judges more discretion over the cases that they hear in their courtroom? Yeah. I mean, look, I um, like, you know, it's a broken clock thing, right? Broken clock is right. <laughs> it's a day. Of course. Uh, it's not that there's absolutely nothing that, that has come out of this white house that can't be considered as a positive. Um, the mandatory minimums have almost always been used, um, uh, in 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 favor of the prosecution right it rarely it does not ever you know benefit the defendant right and i would be hard i would say it's very unlikely that because the minimum the the minimum is sorry the mandatory part of it is the minimum not the maximum right right? so if if a judge has said well for this for for possession the third time somebody has let's say marijuana possession mandatory minimum is 10 years that's a minimum. That judge could actually already sentence higher than that. So right. he doesn't have a he doesn't have a limit on the maximum when it comes to mandatory minimum. Only oh, the minimum. Sure, sure. Yeah. So see how that works. Now there are uh, states will have sentencing guidelines um, uh, that are that are kind of different than mandatory minimums, which are mostly used like in federal cases. Right. But the, to me, getting rid of the mandatory, I think it, it is a positive step. Okay, that is something good. that criminal justice at, at reform advocates have been asking for for years. Three strikes and out, you're out is a ridiculous, oh. uh, has always been a ridiculous policy that's only hurt um, the most vulnerable communities. Absolutely. Because the, those three strikes can be something as, as, as ridiculous as a parole violation that was just like almost not right, you know, being late for something. Yep. There's so much discretion in the hands um, of authorities to decide what counts as a strike, too. So these are important things. But yeah. you know what I what I want to make clear is once again, whatever happens at the federal level, it's good. These things are important. Right. Um, they're signals to the state. But you know what? Most criminal cases are in the state. Right. Right. So it has. It, we have to. If you really serious about criminal justice reform, it's it's the attorney general. It's your district attorneys. Right. It's the local, it's your local state legislature. I mean, that's where the change has to be made. Most incarceration happens on a state level, not on a federal level. And I will say that federal prosecutors um, are actually much more ethical and more, um, I would say, trustworthy than state level prosecutors. It's a terrible thing, but it's true. They're much more more professional. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right. Well, I guess lastly, let's let's go big. Let's talk. We'll talk about uh, the orange monster. Um, what do you think is going to happen? Let's put our prediction caps on. And mine is always wrong. Oh. Um, what do you think happens with this? So um, who knows how long this government shutdown goes? Uh, who knows what's going to what political price? Uh, Donald Trump is going to pay for it. And who knows what the heck it's going to look like when uh, Democrats actually get to do something in the House, because obviously the freshman class and the uh, returning Democrats haven't uh, had a chance to do anything quite yet. Um, what do you think is going to happen uh, with with uh, with Donald Trump at this point? And honestly, the Republican Party, the, the complicit components of the Republican Party. I'm so livid with people like a Jeff Flake. Who like he's like I'm a moderate yeah. and oh you're just not going to run for reelection because you're worried about losing, um, right, like right. I'm just so livid uh, with with all of them uh, with the with the lack of backbone that they've shown. Yeah. What do you what do you what do you, what is your thoughts in in more of a general big sense? Politically, uh, the shutdown is going to hurt Republicans. Simple as that. I yeah. mean, the shutdown is it's th- there's no way around it. Donald Trump wants a shutdown. He is he he can try to spin it, but it's not working because first of all that amazing meeting he had with Schumer and Pelosi where he's like, I, I will shut it down and I will own it. I yeah. think that's the end of that. I think the shutdown is politically really going to hurt Republicans because it's one thing that you have, you know, 800,000 federal workers, but you also have hundreds of thousands of contractors. Right. You have small businesses that are impacted. You have, like you said, uh, the, the farmers can't get their small loans, their loans. And, yep. Uh, from the uh, the administrative body that gives out the loans for farmers every every year to right. get their seed for the spring. They can't do that. It's a hurt. It's gonna the the hurt is gonna trickle down, and he's gonna feel it politically. Yeah. Having said that, I think with Trump, look, I I think at some point he's. I just think he's gonna resign um, because, and I I think that's gonna happen when the pressure on his kids gets too much. I think when uh. the um, well, I think when uh, the attorney general in New York is like, that's it. Right. Um, we're gonna we're gonna bring some state charges against right uh, the kid the kids like on the charity stuff. I think that's right. when he's gonna be like. I'll step down and try to make some kind of a deal. The federal sure. stuff, I mean, like, he's going to pardon Manafort. He'll, he'll part. He's shameless. He doesn't care about the optics. Right, So right. he'll do that. Yeah. He can't do anything. He can yeah, he can't do anything with the state charges. Yeah, I agree with that overall assessment. I am not quite sure if he has the capability of stepping down. I, I don't know yeah. if his, if his ego, but of course that's all, that's all just pure speculation. Um, you might be right. They might have to kick him out dragging. Like, yeah. Screaming in his underwear. I have no idea. Yeah. And his little, in his little pajamas. Uh, thank you so much for being on this show. It has been a huge honor to speak with you and I hope you can come on side stories in March when the, when the documentary comes out and we can do it in interview all about true crime and all about that case. I would love to talk about it. Yeah. It would be awesome. I hope this was a, I hope this was a good experience for you. It was. Thank you so much for having me on, Ben. I really enjoyed it. There it was, the interview with Rabia Chaudhry. That was just incredible. She was she was she was just great. So great question, Travis. Thank you. No problem. <laughs> I was writing it down the entire time and then I, I unleashed it. Well thank you all so much for listening to this episode. Uh, thank you so much for supporting uh, Abe Lincoln's Top Hat. You can go to Last Pod Network on Twitter and then you can follow us over there for all the new episodes. You can find me at Ben Kissel and Ben Kissel one on Insta. That's what the kids are calling Instagram. They can just call it Insta. I don't know. Um, all right, everyone. Thank you all so much for listening. Hail yourselves. We will talk to you soon. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com.
Goodyear Auto Service takes pride in caring for your car. Get in the groove with Goodyear's technician tips. Number 13, inspect your tread. Like a podcast, you're an investigative journalist finding the cracks in the case. And number 64, pump your brakes before you crank that debate. Coming in for routine brake checks are essential for your safety. Goodyear Auto Service, here for the bumps in the road. Get more tips at GoodyearAutoService.com.